Praise God. I know the scripture by heart, but I just realized that I, I left my little script sitting down there. Thank you. You are a jewel. Would you travel with me on the road? I mean, you, you, thank you. <laughs> in, in just a moment, um, it, this is going to be such a treat, at least for me. Uh, and I've lived in Pasadena almost 50 years, and I've known superintendents, I've known teachers, but not once can I remember a single public health director. But I know this one, uh, Dr. Eric Walsh, uh, is a force of nature, uh, just anointed by God. Uh, three years? Has it been three years since you? Wow. And just is in making revolutionary change in every area of our city. I don't know anyone quite like this, like Daniel in the Bible, that just revolutionized every area and you're going to have a privilege to hear this wonderful man of God and pastor uh, a man that can give you the data can give you the science and can give you the word of God in just such an amazing way uh, but right now let's all stand together let's read the word of God together oh and I should have introduced myself my name is Eric Johnson sorry all right our scripture reading today is found in second Timothy chapter 1 verse 7 for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. This is the word of God. You may be seated, but as you're being seated, would you please welcome pastor, friend, and man of God. Would you please welcome Dr. Eric Walsh. church. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been in the, the city of Pasadena in my post uh, almost three years. Uh, many of you may know that Pasadena is one of only three cities in the state that has its own health department. The other two being Berkeley and Long Beach. And so I'm very privileged to be able to serve in a city like Pasadena and by God's grace really make an impact in what happens here. We are called to be the salt of the earth, the scripture says. And the Bible says if the salt stays in the shaker, it, it really doesn't do much for the food. And sometimes we think that being salt means that we have to, in a very formal way, do ministry. But God has challenged me that every day when I go to work, I need to be salt. And uh, so I, I'm appreciative of the prayers and for the great work done by the Lake Avenue Church and by the foundation here. Um, uh, Pastor Johnson didn't mention that I've enjoyed uh, being with you guys in their skills program. I've spoken to the students there and in the uh, after school program, STARS program, um, and just really had a good time. I actually made connections with some of the young people. So the work that you are doing is impacting the city. And um, I just want to say thank you to your church um, and to really encourage you to continue doing some of the great work you do, like mentoring, um, something we'll get into a bit in the sermon. But um, the work that you do, as I see those mentors come in in the afternoons and build connections with these young people in a world when many young people are left like free radicals, left like having an open atom that just needs something to connect to. It's amazing when people of God become the connection. So I thank you for that as well, because that's one of the big things that we can do to begin to impact this generation. With that said, let's go to the word of God. 
and let's go to the book of Mark, the ninth chapter. Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 14. Mark 9 and verse 14. And the scripture says, And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? Mark 9, 17 says, And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto you my son who has a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and he gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spoke to your disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Verse 19, he answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. The message this morning is entitled, Standing in the Face of Fear. Standing in the Face of Fear. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to stand in your tabernacle among your people, Lord. We ask for an extra outpouring of your Holy Spirit right now. I ask, Lord, that you make me just a nail upon the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Lord. But upon that nail, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ so that Eric Walsh has not seen or heard today. Instead, Father God, we want to hear a word from the throne room of grace. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. This is an interesting story. Mark 9 and verse 14 starts with Jesus coming back to his disciples. As we know from the book of Mark, just before this, what happens is that he is taken into, he's gone into the Mount of Transfiguration where he's met Elijah and Moses and he's had an incredible experience. Peter and James and John go up with him and Peter, of course, being Peter, loves it. He, he wants to make altars. He wants to do all kinds of stuff. He feels so privileged and Jesus has this great experience and, and you have to understand, of course, that Moses and Elijah are already in heaven, so they're watching what's unfolding on earth. And of all the people in heaven, they really have a lot to lose if Jesus fails in his ministry. So you can imagine they're eager to visit and encourage, encourage Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. There are only three disciples that go up, so that means that nine disciples are left behind. And those nine disciples that are left behind are confronted by a father with a child who's possessed by a demon. Now, you have to know that these disciples are constantly battling for who will be first and who will be most in the kingdom that Jesus is to set up. And so you would have to imagine that the nine that are left behind are quite envious and jealous and and even probably thinking some conspiracy is going on between Peter, James, and John, why they have been left behind. While they're behind, his father brings his boy to them and they are unable to work a miracle, unable to do anything for him. And, and kind of the takeaway message, even uh, as you just read the Bible and kind of read between the lines, is that if God's people are divided, they are not successful. There is impotence in not being a united people of God. And once envy and jealousy and, and bickering comes in among God's people, all of a sudden, the Spirit of God is not able to work as it should. And in fact, you almost give way for the Spirit of the enemy to work. 
Jesus comes down out of the mountain and he finds the scribes questioning his disciple. And when the people see Jesus, verse 15 says, they come running to him and they salute him. They, they greet him. He's probably still lit up with the heavenly uh, light that Moses and Elijah would have brought down with them. But Jesus' concern are for the nine that were left behind. And in verse 16, he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? Verse 17 tells us that out of this crowd, out of this group, steps the man with his son. Just a man and his son. It's an interesting story because there is no mother in the story. It's just a father and his son. In a time when um, many have uh, uh, relegated men to a second-class position in the home, literally saying, and I've read some of the literature that says that uh, children don't really need a father. Well, the fact of the matter is the evidence, the literature says the opposite, that children actually do much better with their fathers. And, And I think this story is a reminder to those of us who are fathers of the importance that we lead our children, as this man did, to Jesus. Mark 9, 17 says, and one of the multitude answered and said, My master, I have brought unto you my son, which hath a dumb spirit. Now, being dumb in the Bible does not mean that you're stupid. It means you have an inability to communicate. It means that you can't, you don't speak and are not understood or, or you have a problem speaking altogether. And it also can mean that you don't hear very well. So he has a son that is disconnected and unable to communicate and this is caused by a demon. The demon itself is trying to destroy his son as you see in verse 18. It takes him, it tears him, he foams and gnashes with his teeth. He pines away and he says, I spoke to your disciples that they should cast him out and they couldn't. You know, the people that we work with, the people in the world, the people on the streets, even the people in the grocery store, if they know that you're a Christian, they expect that you can do something. You know, they may not even ask you directly, but, but there's an expectation when they run into Christians that they're going to get a, a, a higher level of person out of you. Now, I know many times they're looking for us to mess up so they can say, aha. But I challenge you that, in fact, many of them are like this man. They've come to us, and they may even drop hints as to what's going on in their lives just to let us us see how we will respond. And, And I challenge you on your job to just be open sometimes and asking, as I've had to do with many of my patients over the years, can I pray with you? You know, I've asked that question to probably hundreds of patients over time, and I've never once had someone actually become upset because I asked the question. I've had maybe one or two not want to be prayed with, but the majority of the people have said, thank you. I've never had a doctor offer to pray with me. When folk come to you and you're a Christian, we we ought to offer them something more than what the world thinks we can offer. We ought to be able to offer them the living Christ. He says, I, they couldn't cast him out. Jesus, in verse 19, says, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? And he says, bring him to me. Bring the boy to me. I want to submit to you that this is what the world needs now. We, we need our children being brought to Christ. Unfortunately, as you, you all know, we've, we've changed the way we do business in America. And in fact, it's very difficult in the public arena to bring children to Christ. 
But we still have the obligation of bringing children to Christ. And that's one of the reasons why what you're doing at your church is so special in the programs you do during the summer right here in this building and and after school. It's important because some of those kids, when I've talked to them, really don't have a church life. They they really aren't very connected. Uh, I don't see them sitting here now. Uh, I'll wait and see if I see them in the next service. But, But in general, you're probably reaching unchurched children. Which means when Jesus says, bring the children unto me, bring that child to me, uh, he's literally giving a mandate, not simply to the father of this child, but in fact, he's giving a mandate to the Lake Avenue Church. A mandate that says there are children in Pasadena and in the surrounding areas that don't know Christ. They're failing in school. They're in gang-infested neighborhoods. Drugs and alcohol are all around them. Their families have been broken. Their expectations of themselves are low. And we all, the world would look at them, most of them, many of them, uh, black or brown children, and they'd look at them and say, there's no way that they can be helped. But Jesus says, no, Lake Avenue. Bring them to me. The solution is in Christ himself. Deeper than any gang, more powerful than any drug, uh, more potent than the threat of any violence is the love of Jesus Christ. And the challenge is that we are to bring the children of this city, all of them, to Christ. Mark 9 and verse 20 says, and they brought him unto him. The Bible says, and when he saw him, when when the child saw him, the spirit began to act up. It tear him. He fell on the ground and he wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, since he was a child. We now know that, in fact, the most critical periods of life are early childhood. That if you want to really uh, begin to impact someone, you have to begin very early we even now know from well, what we know from uh, obstetrics and from what we now call epigenetics um, and what we know about the prenatal period, we now know that, in fact, what happens in the uterus is critical. If a mother is stressed, there are good studies that show this, if a mother is undergoing undue stress, she's in an abusive relationship, she's, she's starving, she's in a financial turmoil, if the mother is stressed enough, it raises the cortisol levels of one of the stress hormones in the mother. This impacts then the placenta, and the placenta will increase the release of cortisol-releasing hormone and cortisol. And what we now know is that that child in the uterus will actually begin to change how it expresses its genes. Genetics is not what we used to think, this Mendelian uh, square where everything just happens. What we now know is that the environment has far greater impact than we ever thought. And this is the field of epigenetics, how the environment actually changes how your genes are expressed. The Bible knew this. This is why in Exodus chapter 20, the Bible says that, um, that the, the, the sins of the father visit the children even until what? The third and the fourth generation. If that mother is stressed while the child is in the womb and the cortisol releasing hormone levels and the cortisol levels are increased, in fact, the way that the child lays down fat cells, adipocytes, changes. And a child that would have had very few adipocytes or fat cells will actually wind up with many fat cells, many active fat cells. And 10 years, 12 years later, in an obesogenic society, meaning a society where calories are cheap, empty, and plenteous, plentiful, that child is much more likely to become obese. Our obesity epidemic, I would submit to you, has its roots not simply in what kids are eating when they come out of the womb, but what condition they are in in the womb. 
When did it begin, Jesus said? When he was just a child. We know in the early stages of life, that first year, whether or not the mother breastfeeds the child is critical. And, and what goes on uh, as the child is raised? Do you read to the child, sing to the child, pray with the child? All of these things matter. And Jesus says, what, uh, Jesus asks the father a question like every good physician will. He takes a little bit of a history and it says, when did it start? And it started when he was just a child. Now I have some slides. I, I hope we have them. I, I, I want to put up one here from um, when they were fifth graders. I don't see it back there. I don't know. Yeah, there it is. This is from the Pasadena Unified School District. And, and let, me, let me qualify this as the health officer for the city, that in fact, we know that the rates of drug and alcohol use do not vary much by income. So we think sometimes the people in the poor neighborhoods are the ones who do more drugs and alcohol. But what we also find is that the kids in the wealthier neighborhoods have more access to drugs and alcohol. In fact, in the poor neighborhoods, they normally don't have a liquor cabinet in the house. In the wealthier neighborhoods, they sometimes do. Well, we looked at this and we saw that, again, Jesus said this happened from he was a child. In the fifth grade, in the PUSD, we know that 24%, almost a quarter of the kids, have at least taken a sip or two of alcohol in the fifth grade. I think Pastor Johnson may have been at the CCC meeting, the Community Clergy Coalition meeting, where I mentioned this. And I said, you know, I was showing this slide and um, uh, all of the pastors are, you know, they move in and they're like, oh, my goodness, what's going on? And one of the mothers from one of the churches raises her hand and she says, you know, I used to do that when I wouldn't finish a drink. I'd slide it over to my kids and let them finish it. All of the pastors turn and their eyes get big and they turn to her and she says, oh, I found the Lord. I don't do that anymore. But we know that the developing brain of the child is very sensitive to alcohol. In fact, many people who think alcoholism runs in their family, it doesn't run in their, it's not alcoholism that's running in their family, it's alcohol that's running in their family. And so children are exposed to it so early that they get a taste for it and they're much more likely to become addicted to it. Well, we go on. In the next slide, if you look at this, you can see that um, in the seventh grade, 25% of the kids have had a full drink of alcohol. By ninth grade, 50%. And by 11th grade, 61%. The scripture says that wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereof is not wise. How terrible is it when children are already doing what the law says they shouldn't do until they're 21. Also, you can look here and see that if you look at it, by the seventh grade, 13% of them have, have had tried marijuana. By ninth grade, it's 36%. And by the 11th grade, it's 39%. Now, the marijuana of today is not Bob Marley's or Bob Dylan's marijuana. In fact, it is nine times more potent with tetrahydrocannabinoids. It is nine times more THC. A recent study showed that, in fact, if a child 18 or younger begins to smoke marijuana, it increases the risk of psychotic illness later in life. Psychotic illness. We know that it's not harmless. I don't care if Colorado legalizes it or if California has medical marijuana outlets in every corner. It doesn't change the fact that it is a deadly, addictive drug. And it's an unfortunate reality that in our country, more and more people are beginning to accept it. But if you watch almost any Hollywood movie now, one of the almost staple things in it is the smoking of marijuana. 
And we have studies published by the Centers for Disease Control, which is not a, a far-right organization by any stretch of the imagination. The Centers for Disease Control put out a, a, an article in their um, MMWR, their Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, that showed that if children, teenagers especially, watch someone smoke cigarettes in a movie, they are significantly more likely to try cigarettes. And so that's why Hollywood tried for a while to actually suppress the amount of smoking that you saw in movies. And now I just saw another report that says the number of cigarettes, the amount of cigarette smoking in movies has gone back up. There's almost as if someone is working to destroy our children before they get a fair start. The next slide just shows movies have an 87% likelihood of presenting sexual material. The next slide says the average American adolescent will view nearly 14,000 sexual references every year. And 64% of all shows include sexual content and only 15% mention waiting, protection, or consequences. Our children are being bombarded with the idea that you can just live any way you want to live. Jesus said, when did this start? To the father, and the father said it started as a child. The enemy wants to destroy our children. I remember going to uh, Jacksonville, Florida. I was called by the Bush administration to go down and um, and speak at a conference. And at this conference, I was kind of set up really. The Bush people wanted me there. It was an STD conference, and I get there. And I'm on a panel. They fly me from California to Jacksonville, Florida. I get there. And when I get there, I realize that it's just pandemonium. It's a big political fight. And I'm on the panel. And I don't know what's going on, except that the Bush people kind of shake my hand when I walk in the back door and disappear. I go up front to sit, and I'm sitting there as people are encouraged, are, are trying to make the argument that we should encourage high school students to have sex. That we should be okay with that idea. And I said, but high school starts at 13. And someone said, well, that would be okay. That's fine if that's what they want to do. I said, why would that be okay? And one woman said to me, because children need affection. What? So it became my turn to talk. By now, I'm, there's like a target on my chest. I'm ready to be jumped upon and pulverized. But I had to say what I had to say. And I asked the Lord, what do I say when I get up that makes sense? Because I can't quote scripture in here. And when I get to the front, and when it's my turn to speak, I say, you know, we live in a country where we don't trust children to drive until they're 16 years of age. We don't trust them to vote until they're 18 years of age. And they can't join the military in general until they're 18 years of age. We don't trust them with alcohol until they're 21 years of age. What would make us think we should trust them with the power to procreate and the dangers of sexually transmitted diseases at 13. And it worked. It worked. A lot of people got really quiet. In fact, one of the women who were most assertive in this came to me up and said, you know, I wish I could get you to talk to my 13-year-old daughter. You don't really want that. Because if I had to ask them, how many of you think we should have 13-year-old children driving? Not one of them would have raised their hands. But you would have trusted them with something so much more sacred and powerful? Since he was a child. Mark 
9 verse 22 says, And oft times it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. The, the, the father does something. My English teacher in high school, uh, I wrote a paper once with the word if in it all over the place. And my English teacher said to me, you're using the biggest word in the English language too much. And I was like, I don't use big words. She said, no, if is the biggest word in the English language. It gives you all uh, opportunity and it, and it also gives all doubt. It's a big word. And here the father comes to Jesus and puts an if on Jesus. If you can do anything. And this is where fear overwhelms many people because they come to Christ and they if Jesus. I remember having a, a patient once who... Um, I'd just gone through a terrible, well, she hadn't just gone through it. It was like seven or eight years earlier she'd gone through this divorce, and she was very upset with her ex-husband. She comes to see me as a patient, and she's still mad at him eight years later, calling him all kinds of names. And I said, well, where is he now? And she says, well, I think he's uh, cruising in the Caribbean with his new woman. I said, I don't think he's worrying about you right now. You probably should stop worrying about him. So he said, well, I want you to give me some anti-anxiety medicine. I said, you know, I don't know that you need medicine, really. You, you know, there's other ways to deal with this. She said, no, give me a prescription now. So I take out my pad and I write 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. And I write her name on the top, her birth, date of birth, and, the birth, and I sign the thing and I hand it to her. She, she gets upset. What is this? I said, that's what you need to take. Take it three times a day. So she gets smart with me and she says, should I take it with food? I said, no. In fact, preacher, it works better if you're fasting. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. There's no reason as Christians that we ought to walk into this world or walk into our situations afraid of the world. The love of God will deliver us. The opposite of faith and of fear in the Bible isn't courage. In fact, the Bible says that perfect love casts out all fear. If we have the love of Christ in our hearts, we are not afraid in this terrible world. It says in verse 23, Jesus said unto him, if you canst believe... You see how Jesus is a great user of language? He takes the if and gives it back to him. If you can believe, not if I can do anything, I'm Jesus. I am eternal truth. I am the son of the living God. There's no if in me. I speak and it stands fast. If you can believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe... Help thou mine unbelief. Let me tell you something. That is a prayer that gives us, gives us the permission to take our doubt, our doubt to Christ. You see, what many do when they doubt God, when the evolutionists begin to make them think that the world evolved, when they, when they, when they begin to question the validity of the scripture and we start saying maybe the Bible isn't really real. And I can tell you the Bible is real. God did create this world. When they give you those doubts, don't take the doubts back to the world. Take your doubts to Christ. Take them to the Lord in prayer. Take them to the church. Bring them up because we can discuss these things. But when you take your doubt and walk away from God with them, there's nothing that can be done away from God. You got to take your doubt to Christ. 
Verse 25 says, when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, you dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter into him no more. Jesus cast out the demon and the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him and he was as one dead. Insomuch they said, he is dead. When you meet Jesus, something's supposed to die. Amen. Self, pride, arrogance, all should die. He's as if he is dead. Verse 27 says, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Let me tell you something, when you meet Jesus, he will take you and put you on your feet. He'll give you a new life. In fact, Paul says you'll be a new creature in Jesus Christ. Verse 28, to wrap up the story, he says, and when he came into the house, now when he's all alone, the other nine disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast out the demon? Verse 29, he said unto them, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. This kind can come forth but by, by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Let me challenge you, church, that if you're dealing with something, that you pray and you fast about it. In our day and age, you know, I tell people all the time, fasting from food is good, but fasting from television in the spiritual realm might even be more important nowadays. Fast and pray and watch how God works in your marriage. Fast and pray and watch how God works on a child that you've been uh, hoping would come back to the Lord. Fast and pray about your circumstances, your situations. Take your doubt to God and take it to him. Jesus says some things come only by prayer and fasting. We went through this. The last slide will show um, my cousin Sean Taylor, who was went number five overall in the draft the year he came out of the University of Miami. And he signed a $36 million contract when he did. $36 million. Let me tell you something. Some folk in my family lost the Lord over him signing a $36 million contract. Lost their minds. $36 million. He was drafted to the starting, as the starting safety for the Washington Redskins. And Sean was raised in the church. Um, you know, football began to take precedence over church after a while. You, you get a lot more attention on the gridiron than you do in the pew. And he and his parents began to really like him in that world rather than in this one. Well, long story short, as many of you, if you follow sports, you know, Sean began to get into trouble with the law. And he, he um, actually almost went to jail because someone stole something from him. He went and got the, thing, the, the, the articles back at gunpoint. And he was, um, almost went to jail, but he got probation. He had to lose all of his legal weapons that he had. His, he even got rid of his dogs. His father was the chief of police for Florida City and is the chief of police for Florida City. So they were able to work it out. He got probation. He went back to play football. In fact, that experience, he began to change and he began to come back to church after that time. Well, one night, his... Uh, while when he was injured, he was supposed to play in Tampa Bay with the bucket for, against the Buccaneers, and he didn't. And because he was already in the state of Florida, he flew down with his girlfriend and their baby back to Miami to his home. And they went there in order to um, to just check on his boat. He had a big boat, and he had a you know really bunch of really nice cars and a really expensive house. And he wanted to check on that visit family. But while they're in the bedroom sleeping, two young men break in the back bathroom window, armed. They walk into the house, and Sean comes out with a cutlass, a machete. Our, our family's originally from Jamaica. I was born in the States, but they, they're originally Jamaican. So he has one of these Jamaican cutlasses, look like a giant sword. 
And he pulls it out and he walks out of the bedroom to confront them and they have a gun. And I don't even think the young man who killed him probably wanted to. He shot at his leg, but when he hit his leg, he hit the femoral artery. And Sean began to bleed. In fact, I, I went to medical school at the University of Miami. I worked at the Ryder Trauma Center. In fact, from what I understand from those who still were there, Sean bled out completely in the house. All of his blood was left in his house. They pumped him full of fluids. In fact, they spent $50,000 worth of albumin. They put $50,000 of the albumin, um, something that they put into your blood to try and keep the blood in, like the fluid in your arteries and veins. They pumped him full of blood and fluids, and they did surgery, and he was laying on a slab in a recovery room all alone at the Ryder Trauma Center. My grandmother, when she gets to the hospital, she, she sets up shop right next to his bed while everyone else is looking at the ESPN cameras and the CNN cameras. She's just sitting there. She's singing hymns to him. She's, she's reciting scripture. She's talking in his ear. She's, she's telling him all the things she told him when he was growing up. And she's just there. And I'm, I'm talking to my brother on the phone from California before I fly down. He said, you know, it's weird. Mama won't move. I've asked her if she wants to go home and, and shower and, and she won't even go home. Finally, after a couple of days of this, the doctor walks in with the nurse and the nurse grabs Sean's hand and the doctor says, Sean, if you can hear me, squeeze her hand. And he squeezes her hand. And he says, if you can hear me, wink your, wink, uh, your eye two times or however many times it was. And he winked his eye and the doctor and the nurse walked out. When the doctor and the nurse walked out, my grandmother begins to collect her things and says to my brother, okay, I'm ready to go. My brother says, but wait a minute, you've been here praying for two days and now something happened and you, you're ready to go home? And she said, yeah, I want to go home now. So he takes her home. Within 48 hours, my cousin Sean Taylor is dead. I fly all the way back to Miami. I get to the, to, you know, get to the family and I find my grandmother. And I make a beeline for her almost because I say, Mama, what was that all about? Why did you sit there praying with him all those days? And when it seemed like there was a spark of hope, you got up and walked away. She said, you see, I wasn't praying for what everybody else was praying for. I was reminding him of the songs I sang him when he was a child, because we all spent most of our time, much of our time at her house. I was reminding him of the lessons he learned from the scripture, and I was reminding him of the plan of salvation. I was reminding him of the Jesus that he should have been serving all of his life. She said, and I prayed and I asked God, just let me know that he's heard what I've said. Let me know that it is registered with him, God. My grandmother said, then the doctor and the nurse walked in. And when he squeezed the hand and winked the eyes, she said, it is enough. He has enough information to have decided for Jesus Christ. And she went home. No fear. I challenge you that now is the time to accept Jesus Christ. While he is near, while we understand him, while all things are good, this world is going to try and spook us out of a relationship with Jesus Christ. But I challenge you like the father of this child, even if you aren't sure of what's going to happen, like my grandmother sitting at the side of Sean, just keep going to Jesus. Because I tell you, when you get to Christ, he's the only one that can solve all your problems. And I know the world seems dark, I know many suffer with anxiety and they suffer with fear, but I challenge you that no matter what happens, no matter how bleak the day, have no fear in this world. Instead, replace fear with the love of Jesus Christ. He's a faithful Savior. And he challenges his people 
to stand in the face of fear. Amen.